How do you feel as more and more people who are involved in it have died and passed away and you're still going strong and every time I meet you, you're going to make a new film, you've got this, you know. Yeah. You're a vibrant, living spirit surrounded by these ghosts. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I feel incredible, but I really feel the presence of Peter and Spike. I really do. I feel that Peter and Spike are laughing their head off. This week, I am joined by returning guest Chris Diamond, and Chris and I have been watching and talking about both the 1973 film Ghost in the Noonday Sun, starring Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan, and the 2016 documentary The Ghost of Peter Sellers, which examines director Peter Medak's rather traumatic experience uh, making Ghost in the Noonday Sun back in 1973. And uh, we talked for such a long time that I decided that the podcast would be split into two episodes. Uh, this week, we're focusing mostly on talking about the actual documentary, The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Next week's episode will be Chris and I speaking more specifically about Ghost in the Noonday Sun. But obviously, uh, in this week's episode, although we're, we're focusing on the documentary, we'll be talking about the film in parts. And in next week's episode... When we're focusing on the film, we'll be bringing in uh, aspects from the documentary. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. I am going to try and claim that the film that we're talking about could in in one respect be seen to have inspired um, the 1999 Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense. Uh, <laughs> and if you don't hear me later attempting to justify the claim, then it means I've either, either forgotten about it or decided to... I'm not going to forget it. Hey. I'll bring that back in. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, uh, okay. So let's start. So you, right. Where do you start with this film? We, we, we watched, Chris and I watched uh, the film Ghost in the Noonday Sun. Yep. And then we, and then we watched the 2016 documentary, The Ghost of Peter Sellers. Indeed. And, and, and that was a far, far more pleasurable experience. Um, yeah. So let's let's kind of start at the beginning in terms of how the whole Ghost in the Noonday Sun Farago came about. And I suppose you could say that it all begins with the film Death Wish. Uh, director Peter Medak. Yep. He was he was kind of, I suppose it's fair, Chris, to say that he was an up-and-coming director. He'd had a couple of minor hits and then he had quite a sizable hit with the ruling class with Peter O'Toole. I've never seen yeah. that before. Is that have you seen that film? Yeah, The Ruling Class is a, is a, is a very of its time film, I think. Right. Which is probably why it's not better known now. Uh, if you wanted to characterize a film as a as a television uh, cutaway clip, I don't see why you should, but if you did, do you know where they try and sort of illustrate swinging London? Kind of be yeah. straight, yeah. 
Yeah, and there's always a clip of that guy in a military jacket with a top hat looking through some jackets. Yeah. That's yeah. the ruling class in a clip. Right, okay. It's sort of swinging London. It's it's a bit forced and looks very anachronistic now, but there's no harm to it. But it's exactly the sort of film that somebody like Peter Medak would have been able to, you know, move on from, move on onwards and upwards. I think that the thing about the uh, Ghost in the Noonday Sun, which I, I hadn't heard of until I read uh, The Life and Death of, of Peter Sellers, you know, the Roger Lewis's mm-hmm. book. I was quite surprised that I hadn't, heard of it, I mean, like, at all. Uh, and there's quite a lot of the detail, well, I've said about the detail of what was wrong with it from the seller's perspective is in the book. Mm. Uh, but it sort of lumped into my head. I, I, I started to imagine it must have been like uh, the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, with the same troubled production. and Except, of course, that Fu Manchu got got a release. It used to be shown on the telly every now and again. Uh, and, and I'd say Ghost in the Noonday Sun is probably not as bad as the Phoenix plot of Dr. Fu Manchu, which has, yeah. which has I'm thinking, two jokes. Two? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 I know it's quite a high score. Yeah. The opening bit with the organ where, they, where he starts playing the, you know, the sort of sinister fugue on the organ, which, oh, yeah, turns, yeah. Into, which turns into Happy Birthday. And then there's yeah. a bit of business later on with uh, Clive Dunn. Which is uh, mm. quite funny as a beef eater. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Ghost in the Noonday Sun, I think, had three jokes. <laughs> mm. well, we'll <laughs> come to one, that. one of which actually made me laugh. But you know, the, but what I mean is that the, there is that you, you, it's, it's part of, and certainly in my mind, it became, and I don't think it did differently now. It's part of that sort of melee of troubled projects that seemed to be Sellers' career in the seventies. Uh, yeah, because the block the blockhouse was the year before this. Yeah, and the, the blockhouse didn't really get a release either. Well, it didn't get a release. But then there are the horrendous production stories around the Prisoner of Zender. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. with the sellers insisted on trains being painted different colours and all sorts of shit. <laughs> you know, so you know it it it's, it, it leads you to this uh, image of sellers in his late. In his color years, in his late years, some seventies period, certainly, leaving aside the Pink Panther films, as just a kind of a mess, which I think probably Ghost in the Noonday, the Ghost of Peter Sellers, I should say, the documentary, is probably the best example of somebody trying to explain a one episode of it from a personal perspective, but you know at least. I haven't mm. seen that there have been any, you know, lengthy discussions of why, you know, an hour and a half dedicated to why Fu Manchu went wrong. No. One day I may make that documentary. I never know. <laughs> uh, With Pierce, Pierce Haggard greeting about the place. <laughs> Pierce Haggard to, who turns up in this. Yeah. yeah. Trying to, you know, like, oh, we spent three days trying to get the shot of the lawnmower and the balloon. <laughs> Wasn't worth it. But yeah, so so Peter Medak, he's a good friend of Peter Sellers. They've known each other because London is quite small in the 60s in terms of, Mm. you know, the the film community. And they all sort of hobnob and they get to know each other and hang out with each other. Yeah. And Medak's offered the film Death Wish to, Mm. to, to make. And he says, I envisaged 
that I could make it a commercially successful, but also artistically credible film. Right? <laughs> and in my head, uh, I I saw Henry Fonda as the central character. Wow. All right. And he goes to Columbia and he says, yep, I'll make it. And uh, Henry Fonda, I've spoken to him, Mr. Fonda, and he's on board. And the studio said, no, we, we don't want Henry Fonda. We want Charles Bronson. When somebody so, who looks older. <laughs> so Medak walked away from the project, right? And he regrets we've get, that. We've got shares in a wig company. We need, <laughs> we need Charles Bronson. My um, my mother-in-law used to fancy Charles Bronson something rotten. She did. Oh, there you go, yeah. Something wrong with that. Also Henry Kelly from um, Going for Gold. So, oh, <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen to this. It's fine. It's a sort of hair fetishes. Uh, <laughs> um, so, it, so anyway, he gets, he gets knocked back. Yeah. So, so he he so he's kind of he's between jobs, if that's what mm. you would refer to a director being. He's walking through the King's Road, and Sellers is at some restaurant, and Sellers collars him and says, "Hey, listen." What are you doing right now? And he says, Medak says, well, I was going to make a film, but nothing at the moment. And Sellers says, great. Mm. I've got this great idea, this great script or this great concept uh, for a film called Ghost in the Noonday Sun. I want you to direct it. And it's going to be fantastic. We're going to have a lot of fun, me and Spike. Mm. And then Medak says, yes. Gave me an incredible chance to work with Spike Milligan. And you couldn't have got two more bigger comic geniuses in England in 1973. How about a film possibly scripted by Spike Milligan, starring Peter Sellers and, of course, Spike Milligan? What about it, Spike Milligan? Yeah. <laughs> well, quite clearly, I'm not going to get anything out okay, of it. Okay, I want I think to be is... unhappy, but I can't be unhappy till I make you unhappy too. Yeah, this film was a great opportunity for Peter and me and Spike Milligan to work together and to create something completely wonderful and crazy. Knowing what we know of Sellers now, you, you can't help but think that when he collared Medak and said something along the lines of, we've got this great concept, a great idea, it's going to make a great film, what it actually means is, I've literally just thought of something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just been. Ch- I just had a wee laugh about it. Let's make a film about it. You, you, you make films. I'm a film star. <laughs> it's going to be great. And then you know, but then Medak goes away and goes, "All right, great. Well, let's get started." And then the next day, somebody says to Sellers, "When are you start and goes in the Noonday Sun, he's like, "We're talking about." Yeah. <laughs> well, probably yeah, immediately forgot about it. So Medak said, didn't he, that it very quickly became clear that Peter Sellers hadn't actually read the script. Um, no, and, and, and the script itself is, uh, I mean, it's, it would be, you don't really get much of a script comparison uh, presented to you in the, uh, uh, in the documentary, you know. It's not like a sort of Pauline Kale thing where they take it apart line by line yeah, to try and prove yeah. the secretary wrote it. You know, you, you it's very apparent when you watch it what Spike Milligan's input has been. Partly because he's there doing it, but partly because you know the jokes are very, very Milligan. 
But mm. you don't know what the rest, what's what, how much of the structure remained, or what the story was going to be, how much of it was. You know, it's very difficult to know how much of the original script was left behind. And it's not like the scriptwriter didn't know what he was doing. Uh, you know, it's a very, uh, a very credible writer. Uh, whose name, of course, Evan, now escapes me. Evan Jones, and he wrote Funeral in Berlin, for Christ's sake. Yeah, no, a, I mean, it, it, he's... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, he wrote Funeral in Berlin, he wrote... Uh, well, he wrote Modesty Blaze, but, but you know, Escape to Victory. You know, hurry. Mm. Mm, Wake uh, and fright. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the, the, the point being, the guy's a proper... You know, he's a proper screenwriter. You know, he knows how yes. to write a film. Films that got made, films that got yeah. made and made money, uh, and clearly, uh, you know that that the, the script was introduced uh, by sellers to introduce jokes that he must have been more comfortable doing or recognizing, or maybe just didn't think it was funny. Because who knows what goes, what was been going on in his fevered, you know, speed-addled mind. <laughs> yeah, but uh, sellers, you know, sellers knew that sellers knew from experience that just because a script doesn't the, the jokes don't jump out from the page, it doesn't mean it, it won't be a funny film. Because look at um, I'm All Right, Jack. You well, know? no, absolutely, because you know, it, it, the, because the genius of Peter Sellers, such you know, if you were to characterize it, is that the is that the humor comes from the characterization, comes from the performance. And yeah. you know the way that lines are put across and so forth. I, I, I've always, I've, I've often wondered if it was the effect of the Pink Panther films on him, where what he wants to do, because they work and make him a lot of money, are very obvious sort of slapstick, silly, trip over, you know, bump into things, put your finger up somebody's nose, have yeah. somebody shoot their nose off, which is which all work. Great. I'm not, I'm not decrying them because I love those films. Uh, but perhaps maybe that's in comedy. That's what he always felt that he ended up, in, you know, he should be doing because anything else was taking it down a notch. Who knows? Because it is, well, it is, it is impossible to understand. It's impossible to understand why somebody like him would, would, for a start, uh, sabotage a project that he's on. What does he get out of that? That's the, you know, because. Or from the outside, you look at it and you think, what does he get out of this? You know, destroying a film. So everybody will know that it happened. Uh, he doesn't get to finish the film and therefore get the release and the credit and whatever. You know, he makes enemies of people left, right and centre. There's nothing rational about it. And I think that's also, you get that out of uh, Roger Lewis's book, was you have to kind of keep in mind all the time that there is nothing rational about any of this. Because he was past that, and also it, it right at the end of the documentary, Peter Medak in tears, virtually, yeah, re re recalls because um, th that's the thing. So Peter Medak, I don't, you know, I don't want to race to the end here, but Peter, it, it's a film which is very much Peter Medak's side of the story, isn't it? And, yeah, and I'm sure that it's largely based on fact, um, but it was a bit self-serving. It was Medak. Yeah. Just yeah, sort of saying, to oh, pity, yeah, pity, yeah. pity me, pity me. And he was he was kind of saying, yeah, he was saying that he'd never worked. I couldn't work for years. I didn't work for years. But he went on to have a bloody good career. Yeah, and also, yeah. <laughs> um, 
it was such a traumatic period for him. He was it sixty-seven days filming or something like that. Mm, mm. Um, he never stopped talking about it by all accounts. Um, yeah, he, no, he... absolutely. Yeah, but the, but the, it's a, you raise a really important question for somebody watching the documentary. I think just because I watched the document just for this because of my uh, slavish attitude to this podcast. I uh, I watched the documentary first, all right, uh, okay. and then watched the film. I had never seen the film before, never, you know, any intention of yeah. seeing it. But I do like yeah. making of documentaries a lot, mm. often far more than the films, uh, and that this, <laughs> so that's that's been held up. So I watched it first, and because I wanted to get a sense from the documentary of how awful the production was. And then how that translated to how awful the film was, you know, because there are clearly one of the most famous instances of a disastrous production with a successful film is Jaws. Yeah. Except that when you watch Jaws, there are some very obvious points where you can see how bad the production had been going. There are certain edit points that are that don't work, that make no sense. For example, particularly in the the scene where uh, Richard Dreyfuss is was examining the remains of the first victim. There's a terribly ugly cut in it uh, that's clearly a result of the trouble, you know, the problems in the production. So anyway, yeah. you know, trouble production does not equal trouble, you know, disastrous film all the time. Jules, because if, if you were, if you were, if you had a blackboard and you were lecturing a group of film students about how not to make a film or the cardinal rules of, you know, what yeah. not to do when making a film, in you know, eight inch high capital letters, one of the first <laughs> things you would write is, "You should never film on a boat in the middle uh, of well, the ocean." <laughs> well, now you say that uh, it wasn't it wasn't long since that Peter Ustinov had made Billy Bud on a boat, right on the sea. I think at Ibiza, where they filmed it. Right. And I've never, I've never heard any tales of sort of disastrous production. I mean, um, in in Yustinov's uh, autobiography, dear me, he talks a bit about you know some problems with the, you know the the crew, and because they were an English crew, the plate was roasting, but they still insisted on hot meals because it was in the contract and things like that. But none of mm. this sort of it was a disaster. We we it was. You know, we crashed the boat and we couldn't film. And we I've never heard any of that. So you know, all uh -huh. I only mention that because it the one does it doesn't necessarily follow that the production is going to be a disaster. But also doesn't necessarily follow the disaster's production equals a terrible film. There are all of these elements that you know that go into the mix, and whatever comes out is what comes out. So I just wanted to see the documentary first, basically, as I say, just to see. What the tale was, and of of how awful the production was, and then you know, go on. Now, what the things I found most interesting about that, in terms of the production, is not people, you know, complaining about the treatment and so forth. Which is, I'm not decrying. We'll get to that. Are the things like you know, the ship and the first day it crashed into the harbor because <laughs> yeah. somebody mentions the Greek captain was drunk. You know, so that's that, that's something you don't <laughs> you don't put on your production management slate get a drunk captain or make sure the captain's <laughs> not drunk you know they they you know they they, they there's the seas just tended to be very rough okay well 
you have to work your way around that. You do all these sort of things. When I heard all the locals from the villages rushing down, you know, because they said the pirate ship is coming, your pirate ship. And there in the horizon, say this beautiful, beautiful private ship with three sails and they were slowly coming. It took forever, I think a couple of weeks from Athens to get here. And it finally came here and it made this magnificent turn here. And then suddenly hear this terrible crashing noise. And we looked and the pirate ship here was rising out of the water. And the Greek captain who was drunk crashed the entire pirate ship against the rocks here. And then the boat started to go slowly down. And as the boat was going slowly down, Peter was standing by my side and he was going slowly down too. That's how the movie began. It on the first second, it was a disaster already. Like we've been cursed from day one. But these are things that you don't, uh, are not necessarily things that you can be blamed for because these are just the things that happen you know yes. i don't i yes. don't think i don't it's like it's like any project whether you're you could be building a house or fixing a car or doing your garden or invading russia any plan mm -hmm. is fine until you actually start it and then you hit reality mm -hmm. And but how you then respond to that is what matters. Do you overcome it with a sense of with a sense of alarm and a sense of humor and try to get through it and on and on with it? Uh, now to, to bring Joyce back into it. Okay, Steven Spielberg got his way through it. He had the uh, Robert Shaw to contend with. Oh yeah. No, okay. So he had that. He wasn't this. He wasn't as powerful uh, within the production, obviously, as, as as central to it as Sellers was. But you know, you get you, you learn to handle it. You go on. Now, this isn't me complaining that Peter Medak is is ineffectual or incompetent or whatever. It's only that you would like people to recognise that shit happens. You know, things go badly. Things go wrong. And how you deal with them is what matters. And if at the end of the day the film that comes out is bad or doesn't look good or isn't what you wanted, you can at least say with honesty, we want to see what we were up against making this film. But, of course, the central conceit or, or concept of the ghost of Peter Sellers is that the main problem was Sellers. Not the ship, not the water, not the drunk captain, not the heat, not the town, not the catering, not the extras. All of the things mm -hmm. that are mentioned and might come up in any making of documentary about any film. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, look at another making of documentary, which is the one about the abyss. Now, I guarantee yeah. you, nobody on the Ghost of on, on Ghost of the Noonday Sun went through the sheer hell that the cast were put through by James Cameron in the abyss. No, you know, nobody nearly drowned. You know, nobody, <laughs> nobody nearly suffocated or died. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, you have to keep a sense of perspective. I think. Now, what's the response of somebody like Peter Medak going to be to that? Well, you weren't there. Now, anybody who has been in a stressful situation at work or whatever their workplace is, 
whether it's an office or a building site or a restaurant or a film, knows that if a if a stressful situation grows up around them, it might look like nothing to the outside, but for you, it can really it can destroy you. Mm-hmm. And I completely acknowledge that. And for Peter Medak, that clearly was the case. But would as would it really have been a surprise that Peter Sellers was going was like this and ghosting in the Day Sun? Do you know what I mean? You in, in the in, yeah. in the in the documentary, he's sitting chatting with uh, Joe McGrath and Piers Haggard. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe McGrath had been through it all in Casino Royale. That would it's not like all of that happened in secret. Everybody in the film business in Britain must have known every story about the production of Casino Royale and Sellers. Well, about Sellers and Sellers in general. How many films had he made before this where he'd been unreasonable? You know? Yeah, so it, 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 you, it's, it's really a question of, for me, uh, re- watching it, watching the documentary is one, what did you expect? <laughs> Two, why did you take the job? And and three, why didn't you walk away? Now, there's a lot of business in this documentary about Peter Manning saying, if he walked away, you know, it, it would have been a failure or he would have, his reputation would have been, and all this sort of thing. I, I find it very difficult to believe that his reputation would have been harmed because everybody would have known, you know, what the circumstances were. You know, because he said, it, said it was, he said it was money. He said he needed the money. Well, was, but uh, that's yeah, yes. But this is my point. The reputational thing and all that, I think, is a bit of a blight. He needed the money. To, he needed to be paid to make the film, and that actually is the most creditable reason to stay. Mm. If you follow me, if you mm. if you need the if, because that first start, that's one all of us can understand. If you're a working person, which he was, and you're, you're contracted to do a thing when you get paid for it, then no matter how bad it is, if you have to be able to do it to get the money and to pay your bills and make a living, then that is a perfectly creditable reason to have to put up with all this nonsense and suffer the consequences. But the mm-hmm. other reasons that are given about, you know, it was, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, I would have felt a failure, I would have... People would have thought I was a, I wasn't able to commit to a job and all that sort of thing. I don't really think that any of those are very, very under, you know, uh, fair or creditable to use a overused credible, because everybody would have known it was a seller's fraud. They'd have been amazed he even finished it. Well, I, it, and Medak would have known very quickly after agreeing hmm. this was good. This was not going to be an easy production because he goes around to Sellers' house to actually go through the script or go through, mm. well, I don't know, is it the first draft of the script or something like that? And they get to about mm. page 10. This is Medak's recollection. They get to about page 10 and Sellers is fine. And, yeah, and Sellers is, is <laughs> calm and collected. Yep. And then he gets this phone call from Liza Minnelli, mm. who at the, was, his, was his current squeeze at the time. Well, Liza with his head, yeah. The phone rang suddenly, and it was his then-girlfriend, Liza Minnelli, who they were having this great love affair. Well, Bex, it's love time at the Copacabana. <laughs> yes, and we're in love. It's practically good. And she was very upset, and she was crying on the phone. 
and I could hear her crying, but I also could, Peter was saying, you know, darling, please don't cry. I really love you and there's nobody else, it's just you. And I'm going to count to 10. And with each number, everything is going to get more and more purple around you. And he started counting. I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting with the script open at page seven. And he counts, and can you feel it yet? And two, three, can you see? Can you feel? Is your eye closed? Is it purple? I love you. And it gets to 10, and he hangs up. Now he breaks down and starts crying. I get up and I go over to him and he's crying on my shoulder. And I said, Pete, come on, let's go for a walk. So we went for a walk. And I realized this is the end of it. We're never going to get through the script. And then I think Medex says, uh, what did he say? He said um, he, was, he was catatonic in his despair because very soon after that, um, Liza Minnelli yeah they, split, split up yeah, they, yeah, they split up, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So, <laughs> Sellers is, is is having an is well, I was is that an affair? Are you Sellers are probably married at the time. Anyway, uh, he's having, he was between wives. <laughs> but anyway, he's having this affiance uh, with uh, Liza with his head, which uh, by all accounts was reducing him to a physical wreck. Because she was too really? young for him, and she was yeah, she, she was too young for him. She was too, she was too, she was partying all night and doing all sorts of things. He's trying to keep up, uh, and it was you know seem, you know the, the sort of word from people at the time was that uh, it was making him into a, a physical wreck. It was also exacerbating his obsession with his appearance, his weight, especially. So he was he was on all sorts of weight loss drugs and amphetamines, and he wasn't eating and the, and so forth and to try and stay rake thin, uh, which he'd been obsessed with since uh, the mid sixties or the early sixties, which also was reducing his health and wasn't and was um, you know seemed to have been affecting his mental health as well. So it was all this whirlwind of of uh, problems that were going on at the time. Now, if you're Peter Medak, or, well, it's unfair to say if you're Peter Medak, but if you're you, see, you had been ambling down, <laughs> ambling through Golden Square, and Peter Seller shouted and said, Tyler, I'm going to make a film. And you go, yeah, well, obviously I'm going to make a film, but Peter, well, I'll come to your house, and this happens. Is this not the point where you go, not sure this is a good idea or at the very least think to yourself mm. i better be prepared for some rough times some rough seas ahead <laughs> literally mm. and figuratively mm. i think i think all of this just sort of feeds into the way you try and uh, interpret what you're hearing in the documentary and whether what peter medak says about the production is either you know, justification or excuses. To be blunt, yeah. Uh, but and then Medak spends the best part of ninety minutes, mm. not blaming it all on sellers by any means, because there's the money man as well who gets yeah. interviewed. That that was quite a tense scene, wasn't it? The guy that John Heyman, sent, yeah, sent Where a telegram. Said, basically, what did he say? 
Well, I've, I've, I mean, the, the, effectively, from what from my recollection, that effectively said, uh, "Tell Medak to screw the nut, or he'll be sacked." If we had stopped the picture yeah. at the moment it should have been stopped, yeah. which was probably the second week of production, yeah. there was nobody to pay for it. We'd have yeah. all gone broke. We only got paid if we delivered it. So at that stage of change, it was too late yeah. to stop because we couldn't afford to stop. Yeah. Yeah. The reports I got were that Peter Medak had not done his homework and that he was the person to blame for what was going on. And he said, there is no way we can salvage this film. And my instructions were was to finish it, get out as cheaply exactly. as possible, deliver it, and let's all walk. He was very... In fact, I, I thought he was one of the better interviews in the in the uh, the piece. You should never normally hear from people like him. And I thought he was very sort of brutally honest when he said, like, we'd, we're financing, like, ten films, and this was way down the list of how important, you you know, it was to us. So what we want, we wanted, well, all we wanted was it to be finished on contract, to be delivered to Columbia, and then they would pay us. That's it. Now, that's, I suppose that's pretty brutal to hear. For, if you're a director, which is, in effect, a creative post, although it's a hugely, obviously, as we know, it's a hugely practical job, but it's also a very creative job. You, you, that, you know when you hear that, you know, that, that's, that's the sort of thing that Orson Welles used to make documentaries about how badly treated he was. So to get that sort of very blunt thing, you know, it, it was just actually really, I, I really enjoyed all that sort of stuff in the documentary. It pulled it all up a bit short, you know, all this, the, the, it was in danger for a long time of descending into a sort of, uh, all of the production people that he'd, they'd found for it, telling each other what how awful it had all been and how terrible it had been for each of them and how increasingly bad it had been, the more important they were in the production. And, you know, wasn't it awful and didn't we have a terrible time? Uh, and then, of course, you, you, you John, the interview, John uh, Hyman in it, and he says, well, "Yeah, it's none, we don't care about any of that. I just wanted it finished." It was like Medak was. Um, it was. It was like it's like a it was like a filmed therapy session for Medak. This wasn't it. He was going around into meeting these people that he'd last worked with or seen, you know, forty odd years previously. Yeah, and there was the landed- including the doctor, the doctor that. Um, signed off salads. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. You know, as yeah. you know, like uh, the doc, you know, Doctor Feelgood type. You know, it's like slip him a bottle of scotch and fifty quid, and he'll write you a line that yeah. says, "No, no, he can't go work. He's no, he's terrible. You always see the nick him, and everybody knows it's fake. But what can you do about it? And it was this. It was the sort of glee with which the the guy said, Doctor. Goldman or somebody said, oh, yeah, if you asked me, I probably wrote that. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I probably did that, yeah. Me- <laughs> like, Medic sort totally of stares unapo- at him, doesn't he? Totally unapologetic. <laughs> <laughs> Me- Medic say, gives him this blank stare. <laughs> and in his hand, there was this medical certificate by Dr. Tony Grimberg, <laughs> who issued it saying that he was unfit to work. I can quite easily understand because it would be the sort of thing I would have done. Yeah. He was a good friend. If you say, well, look, you know, I'm ill. I, say, I yes, know, of course. Will. 
Minak spends a lot of the film, a lot of the documentary, either with his mouth slightly open, mm. having having been told of some bit of information he was previously not yeah of. not privy to uh, yeah. Uh, was that, well, there was or, that laddie from the from the production office or the accountants or something. Do you remember he produced a sort of box file? And there were yes, letters in yes. it that Peyton Medak hadn't seen. And they basically were letters, some of from sellers, saying Medak's a waste of space, get rid of him. And, and some of them from the financial people back to the production managers or the or sellers saying, uh, oh, yeah, no, you're right, he's a shambles, the production's a mess. You know, and he, he seemed... And actually, the, the, the guy says at one point, I don't think I should have showed you that. That's the scene where I wrote it down where Medak is almost shaking and he yeah. and you can see he's 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 fighting with his emotions, mm. his inner turmoil. And he says, I want to kill people, but <laughs> they're all dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, with if I'm sounding a bit harsh about Medak, which I probably am, fair play to him, he included all of this in the documentary. You know, he is the director of it, and 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 he he could have left a lot of this out. He could have made himself look a lot better. He could have left out a lot of the criticisms of him that were that were documentary, literally documentary. But he didn't. Mm. So so fair play to the guy. But uh, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, forty years on. Uh, why is he so surprised by all of this? You know, because he kind of thought that everybody agreed with him. Surely, you know, because he, you know, he's in the product, he's there, he's making it. He, he thinks it's a disaster. He's telling the office in London that it's a disaster. Mm. He can't have thought that everybody just agreed with him because he said so. It seems they did. But, you know, but, but of course, that's this, the, these are the things that come out in the documentary that make it worth watching. And it is a very good documentary. I really enjoyed it. Mm. And, and I think he deserves actually quite a lot of credit for putting stuff on the screen that is very, and clearly was very damaging to him, but is, you know, is, is, quite, is quite harsh. I think the only thing that I find a little bit, oh, I think disingenuous is maybe a bit too hard a way to put it, but he spends a you know the, the whole thing about how terrible it was, how bad sellers behaved, and the a fake heart attack, all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, like he, he has the heart. He, he says he's had a heart attack and gets taken away. They think he's in the hospital. And then next minute he, he opens the Evening Standard, which obviously is very widely read at the time in Greece. Mm. And uh, <laughs> there's a picture of sellers out 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 at you know some some terrible. London swinging nightclub, <laughs> mm. but uh, with um with Princess Ma with Margaret, Margaret. Yeah. With some, the, ne the next person he was banging on his list, uh, allegedly. Yeah, no, well, I, I think we're all right saying that now. <laughs> yeah, right, sure, she's not still with us, is she? <laughs> she's not with us. Neither is he. Uh, yeah. No, I think it's fairly well. I think it's fairly well documented by now. Mm. But in any case. <laughs> All of this is, is laid out. And that is, of course, that is the central premise of the whole documentary. But then at the end of it, <clears throat> he's, he's, there's the scene where he's sitting going, oh, I loved him, and he was a genius, and he's sitting greeting about 
when he talks about when he heard that he died. Mm. Yeah. Really? That's what I was going to say before. Yeah, that's it. Because he's he, after everything that's been said in the documentary, mostly by yeah. him. Yeah. He then he then talks about the fact he didn't work for years, but then he says, "I didn't work for years, but then I did get jobs offered to me, and then I'd walk out on them." Yeah. And I'd regret it immediately. So I was, I was kind of thinking. Mm, I think there's mm. more. It's, it's, there's got to be more there than just working with Peter Sellers on a pirate film. But I would have thought he, so. Yeah. He talks about. Um, he was filming um, the film of the odd job, the Peter, mm. uh, the um, oh Graham Chapman film, and and it's filmed uh, wherever it was filmed. Uh, they were filming Revenge of the Pink Panther, yeah, close by, and apparently Sellers and he went and got drunk together, and it was the last time Medex saw. That's, that's Medex. right, yeah, because the, there yeah. was a little thing where they say they mentioned the driver, so it's Bert Mortimer. Yes, it was right. also Sellers' uh, double in a lot of stuff. So uh, Sellers says Ben Mortimer to come and tell Peter to come and have a drink, whatever. And of course, Medak says, "Ah, oh, fuck off! I'm not doing that." And then, of course, he comes over, and then they sort of reconnect. Now, I'm perfectly acceptable. I'm perfectly accepting of somebody after all this time going. Do you know what? It's all in the past. It's fine. I would. You would hope that he would say because he says, "Oh, but it was Peter. We it was us against them, and I love you and all that." I would. I find it a bit hard to believe that somebody wouldn't say, "Oh, jog on." <laughs> like, yeah. If you're not going to, if you're not even going to accept the problems that you caused me, then you can take a go a wee raffle yourself. Although perhaps not in that specific vernacular. <laughs> But okay, so but maybe they did. Maybe they got drunk and Peter went, ah, oh, you know, I was I was terrible. It was what was I like? You know what I'm like, though, Peter. And then they and I'm perfectly willing to accept people can reconnect. That's fine. But it had been apparently so traumatic, as you say, didn't work for years and all the rest of it, that when Sellers, the news came in that Sellers died, it was he was acting like it was his wife or something that had died. You know, I just oh, should he died alone? And he shouldn't have died alone. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's pushing it a bit. That's interesting, though. The film, the documentary, <clears throat> it does. Uh, I didn't expect it to give quite as much weight as it did to Milligan. I uh, wasn't complaining, but Milligan gets. Yeah, there's a there's a lot. Um, Medak talks a lot about Milligan. We we see normal fans. Mm. Uh, Norma Farns, who seems to be quietly hinting to Medak that he should just get over it. I got that impression. Did you? No, absolutely. I, I thought it was very interesting, actually. So they rock up at Orm Court. Yeah. Uh, for anybody who's seen it and didn't recognize it, it's Orm Court. And uh, they sit and uh, the, so Norma Farns, for the, for the uninitiated, after Associated London Scripts split up. And Eric Sykes and Spike Milligan stayed in Orm Court, and Norma Farns, who had been the secretary, became their agent. And Beryl Virtue went with the others away with, uh, you know, to the, they moved on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and she's sitting in the office with that. And it was interesting that she sat across the desk from them. Hmm. Did you not find, you know, like the rest of them? They're sitting like side by side on couches and things, or in a pub or that. But Norma's sitting across the desk from Medak. So 
it's a bit telling, you know, it's just like I'm not you know what I mean? She didn't seem yeah. like she was going she was going to be that friendly. Because on the other established, side established the dynamic quite yeah, quickly. Because, didn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, because I I couldn't help but feel that if you sort of <laughs> if you had a special you know, MR James filter for the camera. You could flick it over, and on her side of the desk would have been Milligan and Sellers. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, that, I'm with the. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to run them down. I'm on this side of the desk. So, Norma, you and Spike arrive on the island, and all of this is going on. So, how did he feel being caught in the middle, and kind of what happened? Oh no, he wouldn't be caught in the middle. He would. That wouldn't be Spike. He'd just say, "I'm not getting involved," you know, and then walk. But he knew when we went to Rush's, and he said, this is not good. He said, the, the film is on a disaster course, and somehow or other, he's got it in for Medac. Yeah. That was the first night we were there. Spike went at it very quickly. Pokey, pokey, pokey! But sometimes it made less sense. Fire! <laughs> Does it matter to him how insensible it is? The more it was like that, the funnier it was for him. Uh, so the the and Milligan has certainly been uh, credited elsewhere in the documentary and elsewhere with uh, at least making it even remotely watchable. Uh, by introducing various different, you know, jokes and sequences and and rewriting it as they went. And now, again, that's that's a, that's a sort of applied criticism of the existing script. But since Sellers was obviously determined to do away with the existing script, somebody had to write something that they could film and make even barely coherent or cohesive. And I mm. think that was probably Milligan did that. I love those clips. In fact, you know the, that way you can't help laughing when you see somebody laughing so much. You know when they look, mm. Milligan's sitting in his office and he's writing something and gets helpless with laughter. Yes. And I always think it's really endearing that he used to laugh so much at his own his material. Own yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely yeah. helpless because he's just yeah. written probably some really lame joke about shooting a duck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which, is a, and, which is a crucial scene in the film. And, well, yeah. it's, it is actually one of the few funny sequences, and <laughs> and, and and it's clear it's also clearly a goose. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Although is that meant to be a joke? Is that meant to be part of the joke? I'm never sure. Probably, probably. So, uh, anyway, uh, I'm also I would also love to believe that the the footage of Milligan laughing and writing is him writing for the film. You've just got to trust that it is. I'm not, you know, you don't know what it is, but no, no. he could have been writing anything, some terrible sequence about being blacked up and hitting Michael Parkinson or something. It would have been uh, worse if it had been if it had been him writing it while blacked up. <laughs> <laughs> and so the only thing that would have made it perfectly uh, Milligan would have been then would have been complaining about the BBC as well. Oh yeah. Uh, mm. So yeah. It, it, and I noticed in the opening uh, titles that uh, Milligan weirdly is, so he's credited with it. So there's like script by uh, your man Evans yeah. uh, with additional scenes, whether by 
Spike Milligan. But he's also credited as a technical advisor. Yes. I don't know what that means. A technical advisor? In what possible sense would he yeah. have been a technical advisor? He didn't know anything about production. No. Uh, that looks too much like a duck. <laughs> make, it, yeah. make it look like a... <laughs> make it good. Yeah. So anyway, unless it was just a way of getting them a few more quid, which is... The, 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 the title, in fact, the titles are... Let's go into the film then, shall we? Because that's yeah, quite a good um, way to get into the film itself. Yeah, just just before we do, um, yeah, I just wanted to because we said before that Medak obviously Medak made this film, mm. um, forty two years after you know the making of the actual film, sure. But it was like just watching it; it was clear that it's it became an obsession, yeah, for for Medak, and apparently he was filming. Uh, the film Romeo was bleeding, which I think's early nineties, something like that. Yeah, sure. Um, Gary Oldman is in that film. Yeah, and apparently he and Gary Oldman talked for hours about the making of Ghost in the Noonday wow. Sun, to the extent that they, that they came up with this idea of actually making a film, a dramatization of oh, really? the making of Ghost. Yeah, it got so far as to there was actually a script written or you know, an initial draft at least, and, it, and oh, yeah. it went no further. But that would have been so. I'm I'm assuming with Oldman as Sellers, that would have been fascinating, wouldn't it? That really would have been because you'd have been because Sellers would have been still alive. Eh, Milligan would have been still alive. Uh, yes, that would have been. Yeah, that would have been something else. <laughs> yeah, mm. and no, I I can't think of any other. I mean, obviously there have been, or I'm saying obviously now. I'm I'm thinking there there must have been. I'm sure there are films that have been made of the making of films. I'm sure there, there was have. a film called Mank, wasn't there recently? Wasn't yeah. That about, um, okay, that was that was that? that was that that was that silly thing where the the insistence that Mankiewicz had uh, written Citizen Kane. Yeah. Which of basically that Pauline Kale article book writ large, which is fucking nonsense to begin with. But yeah, so I mean, there are there. Are, I, I just can't think off the top of my head. There have been films about other films, you know, the making of other films. I'm sure there have been. I just can't think of oh, them. Yeah, just one one. While we're talking about Medek's subsequent yeah. projects, like Romo is bleeding, you know, sure. He 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 didn't stop working really, apart from that little two or three year period immediately. Yeah, no, very very busy um, director. Yeah. Um. But I mentioned the odd job. I just want to mention because for the purposes of, of this podcast, the mm. odd job was um, a feature length version of a Ronnie Barker 30 minute comedy play uh, from the Six Dates with Barker oh, right. series. Okay. And the reason I mentioned that is because uh, a couple of weeks ago we covered the Six Dates with Barker yeah. Phantom Raspberry Blower. That's right. Down. Yeah. No, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so but the, one of the one of the biggest surprises to me when I was looking at Medak's career, are you a Breaking Bad fan at all? Yeah, Chris? no, no, I, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, okay. I, I, I know what you're going to say. I was also, I had no idea that he just <laughs> that he had directed an episode. He directed of, an epi- uh, not just not just an episode. It's the the episode any Breaking Bad fans would know this one. Uh, it's one called Peekaboo, and it's the one where the ATM 
falls on someone's head and crushes them to death. Yeah. No, 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 don't, don't, no! Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I had, I had genuinely had no idea. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised by that because I, I, I must have, because I binged Breaking Bad, so maybe I didn't watch the credits as carefully as I normally would have done. But yeah, Maybe so I mean, too. and he's, yeah. and, you know, he's, he's, he's in fact, I think he's, uh, so, you know, still working. There. I mean, he's, he's not. He's he, he does mostly television. He's done mostly television for quite a while now. But that's yeah. perfectly fine. I mean, I, I, I think the definition of a good director is somebody who directs. I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not that into the idea of people who only make you know, one film every five years. I can't be bothered with that. Oh well, well uh, Fincher does TV now as well, doesn't he? Of David course it Fincher. does, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing um, wrong with it. Directing is directing, you know. You make something yep. good, it's, it's, you know, whatever. And despite of it all, which I keep saying all the time, I absolutely loved him. And it was just great to be there for a second, you know, whatever pain it caused. And so that's where we will leave it for this week. Chris and I were just about to embark upon a conversation proper about Ghost in the Noonday Sun. That will be next week's episode. Uh, so please look out for that when it drops. You know, thank you for listening. Uh, please rate and review in the usual places. Check out the back catalogue. Uh, there's 90 plus now, I think. Jeez, uh, something like that. Anyway, uh, 90 plus episodes to, to uh, search out and download and listen to if you haven't already. So uh, I will be back next week with Ghost in the Noonday Sun with Chris Diamond. Until then, thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye.